Welcome to Top Docs. I'm Mike Merrill, and I'm here with my co-host, Ken Jacobson. Hi, Michael. I'm going to call you Michael today. Good to be with you. Good to be with you as well, Kenneth. Today, we're talking about Alan V. Farrow. It's a documentary basically about Dylan Farrow, Woody Allen's adopted daughter's accusations that Woody Allen sexually assaulted her when she was a child. This is a disturbing film. This is a conversation with some disturbing elements. If you have young children, you may want to listen to this later. There's a four-part series on HBO. This hit home for me in many different ways as a parent, as a person, and as somebody who admired Woody Allen in my younger years. It was really eye-opening because they make such a strong case for really the crimes he committed against his children. Certainly Woody Allen lost me a long time ago as far as his abilities as a filmmaker. He's really slid downhill, but this documentary really forced me to reevaluate what I thought about these events back when they were in the press. Originally in the 90s. Mia was basically vilified and people were like, we don't know what happened. So they just gave Woody Allen a pass. And I think this documentary, by examining all the evidence and uncovering a lot of new evidence, and by giving Dylan's story, makes pretty much an ironclad case, in my opinion. Yeah, it's a very strong case. And as you said, it is, in retrospect, uh, a little bit upsetting on top of everything else that we did not take. I did not take these accusations more seriously earlier. I think probably I heard that the state had asked Yale to look into it, but decided a certain way, and that was good enough for me. And boy, that speaks to kind of the position that celebrities play in our culture, the position that academic institutions, at least at one time, did play in our culture, that they could cover this over. Uh, I, like Ken, was pretty convinced by what I saw here in this film. I, I think we recognize what a skilled documentary filmmaker can do with editing and sound and framing and interviews to cast doubt. But in this case, I really felt like this one seemed open and shut case to me. One of the things that I really love hearing about from Amy and Kirby is their investigative process because they are so rigorous and they leave no stone unturned. They also clearly earn the trust of their subjects so that their subjects are comfortable giving them access to even more information. Obviously, Kirby and Amy are a creative team, but they each bring a singular vision to their films. So it's almost like an exponential amount of content when you interview them both together. This is a great creative partnership. I'd say one of the most fruitful and dynamic in the doc world. Kirby and Amy first got together to make Derrida in 2002, which we do talk about a bit in the pod. Amy had studied with Derrida at Yale, and she produced the film and directed it with Kirby. Speaking of Derrida, this film also comes up in our conversation with Kirsten Johnson, who was a camera person on that film. In terms of the partnership between Amy and Kirby, by 2009, they'd formed this incredibly symbiotic partnership where Amy was the producer, Kirby was the director, and they were working in this space of these kind of bombshell investigative social issue docs, starting with Outrage. And then, of course, their huge breakthrough film, The Invisible War in 2012, which tore the lid off rape and sexual abuse in the military. The film won the Audience Award at Sundance that year and was nominated for an Academy Award. It also, I think, set the standard for documentaries catalyzing social change. They followed that up with The Hunting Ground in 2015 about sexual abuse on college campuses, for which they earned a primetime Emmy nomination. And then in the last three years, it's been great to see yet another evolution in this creative partnership as Amy has returned to the director's chair. She's directing now with Kirby and has done so on The Bleeding Edge in the film On the Record and with Alan V. Farrow, which is their first docuseries one that earned a whopping seven primetime Emmy nominations this year. Please be sure to follow us. You can like us, make a comment, or even the best thing is share us on social media. It really helps. Oh, before we go, I'm dying to do a shout out for Kirby's 1997 documentary, Sick, The Life and Death of Bob Flanagan, Super Masochist. 
one of my all-time favorite documentaries. Check it out. It's free on streaming. You will not regret it. Coming up, Kat and I speak with Amy and Kirby about Alan V. Farrell. Amy and Kirby, welcome to Top Docs. Hi. Thanks for having us. Why do you make documentary films? I'll just give a short history. I went to CalArts and left CalArts thinking, because I was making video art, maybe I want to move into the film business and make independent films. Started working on some scripts, didn't get really get them sold or anything like that. Realized that there were other filmmakers that had started with a documentary. So I said, okay, that's the path. Made a documentary. And then once I made it, I was like, oh, this medium is amazing. It's so rich in terms of filmmaker-subject relationship. I think artists approach their work is we go into a, a territory that we don't know and we start making the film and we find the film throughout the process of making the film. So we don't know exactly what it's going to be. And it's that exploration, that collaboration with other filmmakers, the interaction with subjects. It's also unpredictable and rich territory. All that finds itself actually in one way or another on the screen, maybe not as actual subject matter, but you can sense all those interactions. I just found it just very rich and, and very close to what I was familiar with, which was making art. It was interesting listening to Kirby. We never know what we're doing and it's every day is different. So I love that about the kind of work we do. And I love that about documentary. I consider myself a lapsed academic. What I didn't like about academe was I could never understand how people could give the same lecture again and again, like every year. Once I gave that lecture and I nailed my analysis of Hitchcock's The Birds or Roe v. Wade or whatever the hell I was talking about, I was like, done. I'm done. I don't care if the next generation of kids doesn't hear this. So I ended up stalking Jacques Derrida, who was one of my professors, getting his permission inadvertently. At the time, he was incredibly reclusive. If you look back, there were no images of him. He's sort of the anti-Kardashian. And I convinced him as a graduate student to do a film. And I ended up making a film. And then it ended up being a good mesh of my energies. It ended up engaging my mind, but also engaging that that impatience that I have, that desire for newness and lack of repetition that I didn't have with academe. And it also exercised a whole different set of skills. That's why I ended up falling into this career instead of the other. And probably though, the initial answer when you asked the question was because I can't dance. And I think if I could dance, I would be so out of this thing. You have no idea. We, we were just talking to Kirsten Johnson the other day and we, she mentioned Derrida about the contentious oh. relationship she had with him because <laughs> he didn't want to be on camera. <laughs> Amy was the master there because what's interesting about Derrida, obviously incredibly accomplished philosopher, is an understatement, but there was also this consciousness around people in interacting with him. He was treated a little bit like a god. That doesn't really work if you're a documentary filmmaker. All these academics that were around him responded to him that way, and Amy came in with a much more direct interaction. And I think that's why the film is what it is, because this sort of accepted protocol of academe, she stepped over, she went further. Despite your film about Derrida, Amy and Kirby, you don't really make films about celebrities, but here's a film, a four-part series, Alan V. Farrow, that very much delves into the lives of celebrities and a celebrity family. We'd been in the sexual assault space with two other films. Every time we showed those films, survivors of incest would come up to us and implore us to look into incest. And I learned and was educated by them that it's a third rail. It's something that is ubiquitous and we really don't talk about. We really don't understand it. And it's extremely hard for survivors to talk about, A, for that reason of cultural secrecy and shame, but also literally, technically, if they come forward and talk about it and they say they're an incest survivor, all of us can do the math and name the perpetrator, and that makes them liable in legal courts. So you can't name if you don't have evidence, et cetera. So they're literally silenced in that way. So that kind of had haunted us for years. Tara Goober, Peter Goober's wife, Peter Goober ran Sony and did every great film in the 70s, an incredible producer. She came up to me after a screening and also implored, same things. I've never told anyone I'm a survivor. She's out now, so I'm not outing her. Will you please look into the space? So all of that was in my mind. And then we were doing a post Me Too because we've been in the space. Our cell phones started exploding. 
with stories. People were just coming and telling stories. We set up a shoot in Brooklyn, just interviewing anybody who was publicly speaking about it. Dylan was one of those interviews. And at that moment, we really were just thinking of doing a, hey, here's the state of the culture post Me Too. There was nothing formed. This is what I mean about our films finding us. And we did that interview with Dylan and we were like, oh my God, there's so much here that we didn't know that I didn't know. I'm late fifties. I'm on the generation that grew up with this story, read everything, thought I knew it. And it really was completely different what she was saying. So I got on the phone with Kirby and Amy Hurdy, the co-creator of Fallon Be Fair and an incredible producer on it. Amy Hurdy said, yeah, let me get at this because she's a journalist and investigative reporter. And she said, I think there's a lot more there. Let me start digging. And so she started digging and coming back to us with all this information. And we were like, oh, maybe this could be the incest film, actually. Maybe this finally is a way to talk about it where people will actually be interested in watching it. We don't do celebrity, but here we could capitalize on celebrity. We could use the salaciousness and the curiosity of the public to get people to watch a series on a topic they might shy away from but because of their prurient interest, they'll watch and engage it and educate them at the same time. And also, of course, Woody Allen had set the narrative in a way that was basically covering up so much of the truth. When you started this documentary, I wonder how you felt about Woody Allen. And I asked this as somebody who was very influenced by him as a younger person, David Letterman, Woody Allen, they created this model where you could be smart and interested in things and still funny and still engaged in the world. I just wonder, how did you feel? I, I was never a super Woody Allen fan. There were some films that I thought were very good and, and some that I couldn't believe that they were getting championed. And especially some of the later films like Match Point, I could not see it. But also I was picking up on the misogyny there, the older, younger relationship. That's not just Woody Allen. That was shot through all of Hollywood maybe entire history, but certainly films that, you know, I grew up with. And that I always reacted to. That always seemed like such an unexamined cliche. And that was front and center in his works. I do think, though, <laughs> to give him credit, he's somebody who writes, directs, and acts. That's a huge lift. I'm actually a big fan of filmmakers who do as much as possible. And Woody Allen did that and in some ways was a very significant and hugely influential independent filmmaker. How about for you, Amy? What was your relationship to Woody Allen's movies and to him as a, a filmmaker? It's interesting. Is that relevant? I don't know if it's relevant how I personally felt about him, honestly. But um, sure, I'm a six-year-old Jew. I loved Woody Allen. It's kind of in our DNA. I wasn't a rabid fan. I loved him in the day, and then I appreciated him but that was it. I kind of had moved on to like an old love because it was so sweet. When his films first came out, there's nothing quite like them. And there was nothing quite like that experience. And I think all of us who were of the age and of the day remember that. That's something people forget as well. And Kirby talked about his singularity of being sort of this triple threat or quadruple threat, but he also was inaugural. There was nothing like Sleeper. There was nothing like Love and Death books and chapters and sketches thrown together, that kind of novelty and nimbleness and agility. It was always like a surprise Christmas present, whatever, Hanukkah present, when you opened, when you walked into a Woody Allen film, he was wildly playing with form and format and doing incredibly innovative things. Obviously a deep appreciation for him and a deep gratitude for the laughs he gave me. I certainly had that coming into this film. Although again, tempered by 30 years of also, I, I even though I sort of bought the public narrative, there was a big question mark in my mind about really what went on. We weren't particularly in love with Woody Allen films or Woody Allen, and we weren't particularly antagonistic. We didn't come in with any kind of personal like or dislike. Toward, exactly. Yeah. Or an agenda or, oh my God, this is going to like be a dagger in my heart or, oh my God, I can't wait to take down a God. Which I, nothing. We didn't think about that in terms of critics. We thought about it in terms of the audience. When we started doing interviews with critics, we could see they were really struggling with this. This surprised us. They were like, I get the series, I love it. Your arguments are all there. But you know, you're asking me to throw out somebody that I've loved that has been formative to my career, to the positions I take as a critic, has been foundational. And that was a very personal struggle. And then in the early days when the film was coming out and we were interacting with critics in interviews, they were <laughs> praising the, the series on one hand, but you could hear them saying, why did you do this to me? Why did you do this to me? <laughs>
No, yeah, they were heartbroken. Curvy was, yeah, it wasn't the interviews we did with critics in the series. It was the interviews that critics came to us after having watched the series. We were amazed. We hadn't factored that in and we hadn't realized the extent to so many had such a deep personal cathexis onto Woody and what he meant to them and their lives and that they really came with a lot of angst. There's one interview that if you read it, it's like a, it's like a therapy session. We're trying to comfort the critic and have them help make sense of this. We can look at that as instructive of how much power these people have because of how much we are invested in them, how how much their being has invested, has helped us and how much we're careful about that attachment and want to protect it and protect them as a result. Take us through Mia and Dylan's involvement at the start of this process and then through the course of making the film. Dylan post the interview that we did with her in Brooklyn, Amy Hurdy circled back and said, we were blown away by your interview. Can we just stay in touch? Which was what we do with people that we're interested in. Is there anything going on in your life? We might be able to film. We're not sure what we're doing. We don't ever really know what we're doing. I'm just investigating. And can you point me to some leads? Dylan was guarded, but forthcoming with Amy. And they sort of had this rapport where Dylan said, maybe you should talk to this person or that person. Mia was hugely reluctant throughout and for very good reason. No good had ever come to her from ever having spoken, quite the contrary. So it was hard for her to have any understanding or trust or faith or reason to believe that anything would be otherwise. So the only reason she spoke to us was because Dylan repeatedly implored her. Very far into it, Mia finally agreed and we did the interviews with her. In terms of your filmmaking, the way that you shot the scenes in the house to me, ironically, was somewhat reminiscent of a Woody Allen movie. I mean, it's the golden hues and the beautiful dappled lighting. This was an interesting location because it was their home, where they had retreated to, where they had lived through this incredibly public coverage and then retreated when Woody Allen sort of was able to manipulate the press into essentially going after Mia. She made the decision to protect her family and and protect it there. At the same time, it was location where this happened. One of the things about Mia that's amazing is how maternal she is, how much she created this place of safety. But at the same time, it's haunted. And we wanted to show both sides. Sometimes it is warm and sometimes it's the opposite. It's kind of scary. Mia did not. Mia wanted us in her house as little as possible. So all of that amazing footage that Torsten Tilo got was really a credit to him because we were there for like a nanosecond. She was very uncomfortable. This is pre-COVID, but it was traumatizing to her to have media around her. I remember like Tor kept the camera low and walked through the house quickly. They came out stunning, but it was a complete, honestly, like... I don't want to say accident because that would discredit Tor, but it was not like, hey, come into my house. How many days do you need? In terms of other interview subjects, documents, photos, and footage, how did you get these materials that make for such a rich and deep film? You'll have to ask Amy Hurdy about a lot of the materials. That was really her doing, and I want to give a shout out and credit to her. Amy Hurdy's investigation here is what really broke the whole story open and then got the truth out. Nobody had ever seen the police documents, I guess the arrest warrant that was drawn up. She got to the prosecutor. She got to the investigators who were involved in the New York investigation, which Woody Allen always claimed has exonerated him. But once you look at the documents, you realize it was anything but exonerated. The, the people who actually were doing the investigating believed Dylan, and it was people higher up that was covering up. Amy Hurdy got interviews that we never thought we'd get. One of the things that Amy Ziering and I like to do is to go into an arena that hasn't been explored, or people think the story is one way and another, and be the first there, even before journalists are there. And so having a journalist as part of our team, and someone as good as Amy Hurdy, who, in my opinion, is the best investigative journalist in the country in the field of sexual assault, makes it so that Amy Ziering and I can accomplish that goal. About the interview with Frank Mako, that's a really pivotal interview for a number of reasons. Can you talk about how you got that interview and how it plays such a key role in the film? This is the person who, from the law enforcement side, did the deepest investigation in the case. He and his team 
and really even other people involved like social workers who had been working with him and his team believed Dylan, even though he felt like in the end, he couldn't go forward with a prosecution because it would be too traumatizing to seven-year-old Dylan. What happened to him was Woody Allen retaliated, went after him in all different kinds of ways. Some of this we don't even have in the film. It went on for quite a long time. I mean, it's a real tribute to him that even after all that, he's saying, I'm going to come forward and tell the truth. Again, that was Amy Hurdy who got the interview, but it's Amy Ziering who does the interview. And I think that's almost the soul of all our films, which is that she's able to you know, not only get somebody to talk about something that's very difficult, but almost to see deep inside their own personal experience. Almost always, it's a very profoundly moving experience when Amy is interviewing subjects that have something very personal to bring forward. In addition to your incredible diligence as investigators, what's distinctive for me about a Zeering Dick film are the interviews, which are incredibly intimate, deep, emotional, revelatory. Can you talk about your process in terms of preparation and how you decide you're going to light the interviews and just everything that goes into those interviews, which are really at the heart and soul of your work? We come to these interviews with the light footprint. We have a small crew. We like to get in a situation that's protected, intimate, which is one of the reasons traditionally we haven't done multi-camera interviews, which you certainly have all kinds of advantages cinematically and in terms of editing. But there's something about just one camera, a camera person, and oftentimes our camera person, Thad Wadley, also does sound. And then there's Amy in there. And then sometimes I'm in there, sometimes I'm in another room. It's a very small footprint. And I think that sets the stage for a very intimate conversation. And then Amy has a very interesting style where she has an understanding of the issues of the subject matter, but she doesn't come with questions. I do it completely differently. I lay out a whole arc of how I'm going to do things. So it's really interesting to watch her work because she just goes where the interview goes. And again, that's that exploratory quality of documentary. You follow what is most interesting or most important or deepest in a way when it comes up you don't fit it into some sort of arc that's i think as to the spontaneity that it seems more like it's a conversation for them which it is and i think they feel safer because of that because there's not this back agenda that they're sensing and then finally i think name is able to have a very empathic connection with the subject at the same time have this kind of tops down rigorously analytical view. That's why I think you get both the really personal and intimate kind of qualities of her interviews at the same time, all kinds of major social political issues are getting played out and discussed because she's thinking about it at that level too. So how do you do it, Amy? What's the secret <laughs> Amy sauce? I think Kirby, you, you articulate beautifully. It is important to have a very private personal space to the extent that we can, especially if it's trauma. I also want that person to not sense our presence oppressively, as Kirby said, have a really light footprint. The second thing with the trauma survivors, the moment we sit down, I look them in the eye and I say, this is about you, not me. If I ask you anything you don't want to answer, 100% fine. If you start answering and stop, 100% fine. If you want to leave at any time, you're in control here, not us. Take care of yourself. And I've heard time and again, especially post Me Too, when Weinstein survivors, I would run into them. They said, you know, the, you talk to me, I talk to the BBC, I talk to this, this, this. You're the only one that said that. I, and I mean it. I walk the walk. We've stopped interviews. We've left interviews. I have like five tabs open at the same time. It's genuinely relating to a person as a person, not as a subject or object that you want to extract information from, like really seeing them and their humanity and affirming that off the start. It's not performative. It's sincere. As Kirby said, then at the same time though, and I, I, I envy, and now I listen acutely to podcasts and I listen to interviews all the time and I see who does their homework and who doesn't. And I'm envious of people that do their homework. I, I don't do homework in the way I would like to or should, because I want to be surprised. It's that same thing I said earlier about never wanting to give the same lecture as an academic. If I read an article, I won't ask the question because I'll know the answer and I'll forget that I know the answer. If I read something, a, a biography of someone or a subject, then I won't 
it's I've done I've got that information. So I come with not a lot of preparation. I do have an idea. There's stuff floating around, but I really try to know as little as possible, oddly enough. And then I'm really genuine in my responses. I'm really actively listening. And as Kirby said, I'm following the lead of where they're going. I have a general a topoi that I want to address, but I don't have formatted questions or a destination necessarily. So that's one tab open. So actively listening and then being an empathic responder. And then the other tab is you're following where their emotional current is too. If they're going somewhere, then you might stay in that vein and go deeper at that point. I know if you had a set of questions, I noticed with morning news shows, they just go, but I have the privilege and ability to keep an emotional tab open. And then something else I talk about is often this, I don't see enough interviewers do is silence is a gift. And often when someone says, I I don't know how to answer that, or they're stumbling, or I just wait, I don't then pivot. I find often, and I wish more people did this is that you sometimes get your best answers. Then when your subject has time to reflect isn't pulled out of their moment of meditation because you're afraid of dead space or quiet. So there's that going on. And then obviously as an editor and filmmaker, I'm also listening actively, not only for content, but did they say it in a way that we can use it as a bite? And I did an interview the other morning and I was a a person on listening. I hadn't worked with me before. And they must've been so wondering why is Amy keep asking the same thing again? But I kept asking the same thing again in a different way. So the person I was interviewing didn't notice, but I was doing that because I could tell that the bites weren't landing, that what they were saying wasn't going to cut. Like she went down too many rabbit holes. You're not only actively listening for the content, but you're actively listening to, can we cut this? Is that going to be concise enough? It's exhausting. We've all been talking about interviews with subjects who are receptive, but this technique actually works with people who might be considered suspicious or might be, we might be examining their companies or their institutions role in some sort of uh, crime or cover-up because that empathetic interaction that happens at the beginning opens them up. I should give Kirby a shout out because he's really good at the kill. Like we can do, because there's two of us, we can do good cop, bad cop, which I think other film teams don't have. And I can come in and gee whiz, really tell me about the pharmaceutical. Really? That's so crazy how you sell medicine that way. And just be like this, like stupid cheerleader. If I'm playing that, I've softballed them. I buttered them up and then he'll come in with the more twisted pointed question and they're caught off guard. They're not on their defense. They're not on their talking points. The interview with Dylan Obviously, she's an incest survivor, and there are genuine concerns about re-traumatization. How did you approach that interview, Amy? The same thing with the sensitivity at the start, with grounding her and me and saying this is a safe space. That was very important. We do formal sit-down interviews, but we also do sort of verite-ish interviews on the fly. And there's one where we're in her house, and I did start asking about some emotional things, and she did go full-blown out of a panic attack, we kept filming that and then asked her permission if we could keep it in. But you have to be very careful. The other thing I'll say about it, which we learned often, especially for Hunting Ground, Invisible War, we did a lot more interviews that ended up in the film, right, Kirby, of survivors. We did a lot. And I remember getting a letter a couple of years later from a woman saying, Amy, you don't remember me. I was in the hunting ground and I didn't make it in the film, but I'm writing to you to thank you because those two hours with you changed my life. It was the first time I told my story and anyone believed me and that you heard me and held the space freed me. That space, that moment can be for some, not for everyone, but it actually can be a working through and a movement forward. Corey from Invisible War, when we were at Sundance, people were asking her, what was it like doing the interview with Amy? And she said, it was amazing At one point I started crying and I started going back. She was triggered and she was back in the space. She said, and I I didn't remember this, but she said, apparently we stopped the interview and I actually physically held her and I didn't know her. And I just said, you're safe. You don't have to go there. We're here now. You're in your house. You're safe. And she said that my saying that no one had ever said that to her and all the years of therapy and all the pills they'd given her, everything that like the past can be somewhere else and you can ground yourself in the present now. Your documentary very clearly is about Dylan Farrow, but it's also about some broader issues. And one of them seems to be the culture of silence in Hollywood surrounding geniuses, bad geniuses. 
Hoffman. You did a wonderful job of showing this. You have the great scene at the Golden Globes with Diane Keaton speaking, and you cut away to Kevin Spacey, and then you have Diane Keaton being interviewed by Matt Lauer, and you realize there's this whole culture of people with serious issues who are protecting each other. Is this a theme of your film, and how do you think you're dealing with it? I think it's a theme of all our work, really. We're not only focusing on the individual story, but there's a or on perhaps the perpetrator or the institution that is backing the perpetrator. There's a whole network of people that are allowing this to happen that know about it. I think it's really important to know that because otherwise you don't understand the experience of uh, survivors going through. Is they're not just up against one person or even that the institution behind them, they're up against their whole community. I do think that's one of the things that Invisible War and then Hunting Ground did is it reframed the issue. These stories aren't just about individual stories of rape. It's actually about hundreds, thousands, tens, hundreds of thousands of people that this is happening to, and this is why it's not coming out. And I think that caused a reframing in the public mind that helped things blow open with Me Too. Because those films, I think, certainly made a huge impact within Hollywood and made a huge impact within anybody who was a survivor. And so I think it helped set the stage, among many other things, of course, for Me Too, for Dylan to come out completely unsupported that publicly against someone who was at the peak of their influence and say, this is my truth. I think had a huge influence as well on Hollywood. And I think that was an important precursor to me too, as well. What impact do you hope that this film is gonna have? We make films for multiple audiences. We're not only making it for, for film audiences, we're making it for audience, uh, people who are not considered sort of film lovers, film goers, they may see films, but they're in different institutions. Like for example, with The Invisible War, it wasn't only for independent or documentary watchers, it was also for people in Washington. It was also for people in the military. And it's an interesting challenge to be making a project for multiple audiences. For example, in The Invisible War, we were very careful not to criticize the military. We criticized the military around sexual assault, but it was not an anti-military film. We sort of took the lead, actually, of our subjects who would show up in interviews wearing their branch sweatshirt with Coast Guard on or U.S. Army, and then proceed to describe the horrific things that had happened to them in the Army. But they still loved the military. And so we thought it was really important to really not condemn the entire institution or condemn people's love of it or condemn what is really good about it, which is these are people who are serving their country and in some cases giving their lives. I think we were very careful to reach out to that audience and we were very careful politically to make it nonpartisan or bipartisan. I, 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 think, I think that's something that, that critics sometimes don't see. They're very astute viewers from the point of view of a film audience. But there's actually something going on in other places that oftentimes, I mean, I think critics are aware of it, but I don't think they're aware of actually what's going on out there. Like for example, with The Bleeding Edge, a film about the medical device industry, which is almost, it's a shocking how little it's covered. Just to give you one fact, most medical devices that are implanted in people are not tested in people. And nearly all doctors who implant those devices don't know that. That's in and of itself, just a shocking fact, right? That film really resonated within the medical community, but there's no way as a film critic, you would know that, but we know it because we go into a doctor's appointment and, and, and the staff is talking to us about having seen that film. That adds another level of ambition, complexity to making art is when you're making a film for multiple audiences. The same shot has to reach two different audiences, the same cut, the same interview by. In terms of reaching different audiences, there are many things in the film that I think provide really compelling evidence to believe Dylan's story. One is the footage that Mia shot starting on August 5th, talking to Dylan about the abuse that occurred the previous day. I believe that footage has not really been seen by the public before. 
From doing the investigative work, we knew that footage existed. Amy Hurdy spoke with Dylan at some point and asked what had happened to it. And Dylan said that when she was 21, her mom gave it to her and said, this is yours. Do whatever you want with it. You should have it. It's your testimony. And Dylan put it, <laughs> hid it away in the back of a closet. Amy asked Dylan if we could watch it. She wouldn't have to give it to us or send it to us. We just wanted to watch it for our own background research. Dylan said she'd think about it. We would obviously come to her place and we'd watch it however she wanted. So she'd feel safe. It wasn't copied or she wouldn't have to send it anywhere. It was at the end of a shoot. Amy remembers this more than I. I don't remember. It was probably the day we did the scrapbook. As we were leaving and packing up to go, she said, you guys can watch it. I guess she'd had such a moment with us and felt close and safe. And we're like, oh, okay, we'll rebook our plane. And so we stayed in her place and we watched it and then processed it and thought about it. When we were along in the editing process, we reapproached and we said, how would you feel if we worked with it? And again, you can change your mind at any time. And this is, you know, very sensitive. You can sit and ruminate if that's comfortable. And it was a long process. But then finally she said, look, if this can help others, if maybe there's some child out there, some adult that my voice as a child will resonate with, then go ahead and use it. And then it was a very long process with me, Kirby, and the editors about how to use this most sensitive, thoughtful, non-exploitive, non-sensational way. That was very carefully done. Amy, you talked earlier about your thoughts of going into academia uh, and how you took a left turn and went into documentaries. I think one of the distinctive Kirby and Amy elements is in the scene where you show the home movie footage that Mia has shot of Dylan talking about the abuse. And you show it to these three experts and then you get their reaction. We wanted experts. These are people who are trained, who have seen hundreds and hundreds of testimonies of children. So these are people much better than you or I or anyone skeptical in the audience watching this who know how to read a child's testimony because a lot of what we've all been fed is a false narrative that children are easily coached. They're not. Um, that mothers coach their children. No, nah, very extraordinarily rare. We've been fed this toxic narrative because it's protected predators of privilege. And we've believed it because we've been indoctrinated in it. So we thought, let's have experts enlighten us. You guys have seen hundreds of testimonies. Does this resonate as something that, you know, was coached? Because that's what you're going to hear. Explain to us so we all can watch and learn in real time. How, how do we evaluate or assess this testimony as evidence? It was resounding. It was fascinating what they would pick up on and what they would say. I, I obviously noticed things. Kirby obviously noticed things. But I learned so much from their analysis as well. And I think we as an audience do as well. There's so much information that we couldn't get into the four parts that we actually did a companion podcast. It's got footage that we didn't use. It's got interviews we didn't use. It actually has more from Dylan that we didn't put in the series talking about the abuse. Dylan, at one point, she says, did your daddy do this to you, mommy? And that kind of meta-analysis of a child, you can't coach that. A parent wouldn't think to ask, now ask me if this happened to me as a child. That'd be pretty sophisticated coaching. You can see the kid in real time trying to process this. Daddy did this to me. Do daddies do this to everyone? Mommy, did your daddy do this to you? This is obvious that the child is completely speaking the truth. We wanted to talk about the treatment of Woody Allen's film, Manhattan. We wanted to focus on Manhattan because that is considered sort of the apex of Woody Allen's art, if you will. At the same time, of course, as somebody who's a, a teenager, she's 17, Woody Allen is much older. The relationship is presented completely positive. It's not problematized at all because of the power structure. What's significant about that is the fact that this film was so loved and with the exception of a few critics, very few, that really obvious problematic aspect was not examined at all, which not only, not only speaks to Woody Allen and, and his approach, it speaks to the entire critical apparatus and the entire film audiences who were taking this in. So we thought that in some ways that film was seminal for our analysis. And then there's another level on that, that which is why we wanted to put in Christina Engelhardt, who had had a relationship that was about the same age as Mario Hemingway and was actually a muse for Woody Allen writing that. First, we want to examine the presumptions in this unexamined relationship on screen, but then 
let's think about the relationship Woody Allen was actually having with the real person who was an inspiration for this. She too was won over by, oh, I'm in the presence of a great artist, this concept of the muse. But it took 20 or 30 or 40 years for her to realize that something really profoundly was taken from her. And then finally, we wanted to examine this concept of the muse itself, which is always taken as somebody is fortunate to be considered a great artist muse. And what happens there in general? Oftentimes, the muse is actually an uncredited co-creator, right? We know a lot of stories about that. But also that there is a taking there. There is a taking that is taken for granted, I think, by society's love of great artists and looking at the world through their perspective. It was interesting for us to juxtapose Christina Bobby Englehart, and the interesting footnote from that is if that's her name, she alleges she was one of the muses for Manhattan and the timing and the pictures of her and the similarity of her to, to Mariel Hemingway are incredibly striking. And she was Woody's girlfriend, or she alleges she was Woody's girlfriend. Christina Bobby Englehart, what else does that resonate in Woody Allen fans? Vicky Christina Barcelona. And then, as Kirby said, only belatedly did she realize, which often happens with women and predatory behavior with older men and men in general, because you're too young to know what's normal. So she, in retrospect, reevaluated, and she was so flattered to be his muse. And as Kirby said, the muse is kind of a toxic trope, right? Is it that flattering? I mean, it's an objectification. You're exploited without any remuneration. And yet, because of our patriarchal society, it should be a privilege and a gift that you served someone else's needs and elevated and amplified them. So we wanted to look at that. We also wanted to then do a kind of close analysis, a, a reappraisal of Manhattan, now looking at through it through a different prism, through a prism of predatory behavior and exploitation. And what does the film tell us? So that was very interesting when we started looking at it in that way and asking critics to just reflect on, can you give me a reading of this dinner scene? They're in they're all in their 40s. She's talking about doing homework. I loved in Manhattan, the reversal, right? It's always the woman's desire. It's not me. It's her desire. No predatory behavior here. I'm just responding. And it was so absurd when you listen to the dialogue. Oh my God, can we have sex in a position you've never had it before? What? That's clearly a 40 year old man's projected fantasy. It's Tracy's desire. She's really into him. Oh no, Tracy's crying and she loves him. We all bought that. And was like, oh, that's interesting. He sort of neutralized his predatory behavior by always writing the desire into her, not him. And then also getting the people around him to normalize the behavior right? Diane Keaton at the dinner table doesn't say anything. They go, Hey, you're crushing it. She's adorable. As opposed to this is creepy. She's doing her homework, dude. You know? And so like we're frogs in a pot of boiling water while we're watching this. We're like, gosh, maybe is something wrong? No, nothing's wrong. They all thought it was okay at dinner. And so we were very interested in analyzing that and then drawing a parallel to how what we learned from experts. Also predators act that way in real life too. They employ certain things that you might feel uncomfortable in real life, but you're like, well, maybe, maybe it's okay if she sucks his thumb. Maybe that's what dads do. I don't know. Maybe it soothes her. I don't know. That kind of normalizing of behavior is also how predators work. So I loved talking about how the films groomed us as a public, which mimics the way that predators groom their victims and the people around them so that you're blinded and blindsided by their behavior. He also groomed the critics. And it was probably that film that was difficult for these critics. It was so personally embedded in their worldview that there was a cognitive dissonance that they were faced with when they watched the series and it became a very personal experience. And I think it's centered a lot around that film and are taking that apart. I, I haven't thought about it to now, but I can imagine someone who may have put Manhattan on their top 10 films of all times year after year suddenly watching that scene and thinking, oh, <laughs> this is, <laughs> we all have that. I'm not trying to single out critics. Every one of us have gone through that. We all have idols or we all have people that are very formative to us creatively who we reappraise. And the more formative they are, the more personal and difficult of a process we have to go through to, to work that through. No one is immune. I'm not sing singling out Woody Allen loving critics by any means. You talk about the grooming and 
this is what Dylan says. He said to her, don't move. We can go right. to Paris. Don't move. I'll put you in my movies. Same lines he's used on every woman yeah. for 45, 50 years. Yeah. I don't see anyone who could watch that video and not be convinced. Before the podcast, Mike and I were talking and he asked me, do you have any doubt about Dylan's story? And I said, absolutely not. I think this really speaks to your film and to the depth and the diligence and the quality of your investigation and your research and your interviews. What for you is the most compelling evidence that either you uncovered or you became aware of of Woody Allen's incontrovertible guilt? There's so much. There were three primary investigators investigating for different government agencies. And all three of those people believed Dylan. And these are the most professional investigators in this case. And two out of the three recommended to go to criminal trial. And the third, that wasn't her role. She wasn't involved directly in the criminal process. She was a social worker, but an expert in this. So the people who know the most about these kind of cases and who did the most investigation into it and who spoke directly to Dylan, and in many cases, multiple times, all believed Dylan. For a kid to have knowledge of sexual behavior before they become sexual, that's evidence. Her testimony is evidence. Woody's phone calls with Mia to me are incontrovertible evidence. I talked to an expert and she said, you know what fathers do who are falsely accused, who didn't do it? Do you know what they say to me? They say, oh my God, how can I help my daughter? What is wrong with her? Who did this to her? Why would she say such a thing? They don't say the mother planted these ideas. The mother is evil and jealous and trying to get back at me. And that was such a light bulb moment for me. It's like, yeah, as a parent, if your heart is with the child and you're not covering up anything and you didn't do it, you would go, oh my God, let's get my kid help. I, I, how, do, how do we unpack this? What do we do? Who, who molested them? And they think it's me. All of those questions. Did he ever say that once on those phone calls? Did he ever act like a concerned parent for a child in torment? Speaking to what Amy was saying, about Woody's complete lack of regard for the welfare of his children. I loved the way you juxtaposed the two press conferences following the Yale New Haven release of the information about their findings. We have Woody Allen talking about himself and going on. And then Mia comes on and she just says one thing. I just want to say that I will always stand by my children. She's not marketing. It's not theater for her. And for him, it was all theater. There was an agenda and there was a spin and there was a necessity to the performance. And she's just, I don't even know why I'm talking to you guys. I just care about my kids. I'll see you later. She's not trying to sell. It was really poignant. The sound design I thought was terrific. I thought the use of the sounds of the birds throughout a lot of scenes was just really worked, reminded you of Connecticut, even in scenes that weren't right. about Connecticut. Did you intentionally use a clarinet? throughout the movie. Yeah, we were trolling him. That's Michael Abel's is brilliant. And you got to listen to the score and see when it comes in, the irony and the, yeah, it's brilliant. The score is its own masterpiece, honestly. It's really a tour de force. He does definitely deploy the clarinet as commentary throughout. And just to clarify, when I brought up the clarinet, what we're referring to there is the opening of Manhattan starts with Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue with the famous clarinet intro. But also, aren't you trolling Woody himself, who is this amateur clarinet player? For sure you are. And yeah. I first became aware of the solo over the inner title, which was uh, Woody's denial of ever having committed any sexual abuse. I love the irony there. Can you tell us what you folks are working on next? No. <laughs> who are you talking to? We never do. No one except my three daughters, that's the truth, knew about Alan D. Farrow, and we worked on it for three years. Until the trailer dropped. And like people are like, your name's on that thing. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> like family members. I was like, oh yeah, I forgot to tell you. We tend to keep things super quiet for good reason. It helps us get access to material that we wouldn't otherwise get access to. And it just also keeps us in a more meditative private state. I want to thank you guys for standing with Dylan and Mia and making this uh, 
really important and compelling and incredibly well-made film, like always. We hope that their story helps others know we stand with survivors of incest around the globe, honestly, and hope this helps them feel heard and seen in a way and acknowledged. Yeah. Thank you for this. It was a wonderful it was fun. conversation. Do you folks have a hidden gem, a documentary film that you think doesn't get the attention it probably should? Yeah, it's called The Emperor's Naked Army Marches On. It's really a film about cannibalism. At the end of World War II, there were Japanese soldiers, even though the war was over, didn't know about it. And they were up in the jungle and they were still fighting. And of course, they were getting no supplies. They ran out of food. And so the officers started cannibalizing a few of the enlisted men. Of course, the Japanese completely covered this up, like any country would cover up this kind of atrocity committed by their soldiers. There was an activist who was a real anti-military activist in Japan. This becomes his cause celeb, and he challenges these individual officers about what happened, and of course they deny it. And because, you know, the Japanese culture, there's so much respect. To see somebody stepping outside this kind of decorum was, is just, it's funny. It's a really strong activist film and in many ways preceded the activist filmmaking that followed. I know that Michael Moore cites it as an influence. Uh, a film I really liked, I don't think got the attention it deserved, is Laurie Anderson's Heart as a Dog. That's an amazing documentary that I really thought was extraordinary and just came and went. My sort of innate bent in documentary is more art films, honestly. Like my influences would be Sans Soleil or Koyana Scotsi. Those had a huge impact on me. And if I were to be the person, that would be the gift I wish I had to make things like that. You know, fortunately, I was given a more critical analytical mind than a more artistic one. I think the thing that came closest to that for me for making an art film was Derrida. That was a, a hybrid. That's a philosophical meditation. And it's a documentary ostensibly. But it, for me, it's really kind of that hybrid art film that was reaching for something else.